coming in today, I'm thinking that you're a little distracted. You're preoccupied with a lot of things that are important. Um, you might be thinking, well, how does a passage like today relate to you? You might see some familiar roles that are yours, but you might see a lot that you're like, wait, that's not even my life, or that's into the future, or that's other people. Why does this relate to me at all? And so I want to just put that up front and to say, you know what? That's understandable. You're coming from a good place in that you're focused on schoolwork, you're focused on other things, and you're not thinking about wives and husbands. You're not thinking about your parents. You're not thinking about you know, bond servants and bosses. You're not thinking about those things. But before I go into the message today, I actually want to encourage you to pay attention today for these few reasons. Number one, if you see the title, it says, Serve God Joyfully in Everything. So when it's there, everything, it actually relates more than just you could do everything, but it's everything that you do. So it's your life. How can you serve God joyfully in your life? And when you think of it that way, then there are places for all of these things that we're going to talk about today. So connecting to Colossians, I want to go to the next slide, please. Connecting to Colossians, I want to highlight a couple of verses, starting with verse 1 and then verses 12 to 14. Uh, next slide, please. So verse 1, this is who you are, according to the Apostle Paul, if you're a Christian. You have been raised with Christ. Seek things then that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you're a Christian, there's something different about you, in that the way that you have been set apart by God makes you someone that kind of stands out in this world. But then it's not just who you are and where you stand, but it's how you see things, where you can see things through the lens of the Bible that maybe other people don't see. So then part of today then is hopefully going to be able to show you guys some things that are ordinary in life, but then be able to see them from a heavenly position, be able to see in Christ, well, how can it be different when Jesus is in the center? Verses 12 to 14 then says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This was preached just last week. Wanted to make the connection then to where when we're looking at these roles that we're going to see in the passage, it's not just these people do these things and I don't, or these people impact me in these ways and I don't. It's how do we all come together so that we are showing this type of love that Paul is pointing the followers of Jesus towards. Because guess what? They're chosen in Christ. And when you're chosen, you're special. You're special to God. You're special to each other. And you're special in your home. And you're special in the place where God has you being productive, which for most of you is going to be in school, although some of you work as well. But in those places, if you're a Christian, you're special. So special people live and act and think differently. And I mean special in a good way, instead of just kind of joking around with each other where special might not be always a good thing. Special is good in God's eyes, and as you look around, hopefully in each other's eyes as well. So because that's who you are and how you're called to live, I want to invite you that when we look at the home today and when we look at spaces where you're productive, mostly school, pay attention because it's going to relate to you today in some way, and it's going to give you hopes into the future. When we talk about husbands and wives, you might not all get married in the future, 
but I do think a lot of you kind of want to. So more than just thinking, okay, I'll just wing it until I get there, you can let scripture from a heavenly place start shaping your mind as to how it is you can prepare yourself for relationship and for marriage. Same thing with working. Eventually, when you come out of school, you're probably going to work somewhere for reals. So you can start thinking about how it is you can see things from the heavenly places in Christ to be able to be ready for whatever job comes your way or whatever responsibilities that you have. So let today's passage shape your mind, engage with it. And even as you hear some of this stuff, I mean, we started off with a wives passage. So right away, you're thinking, okay, this sounds weird because this is what you hear. This sounds a little whack, maybe because of what you've seen when it's not done right or well, or that reflects who Christ is. Even in a Christian home, that there are times in which people don't live out what it looks like to follow Christ as husband and wife. Your own parents, even if they're Christians, may not come close to what this passage is describing. Right? It might sound a little wrong, even, because it's countercultural, right? In terms of what people tell us life should look like, or marriage should be, or work should be, or what we're living for. But open up your mind. Open up your heart and years and give this time to God because as he shows you what it looks like when Christ is in a center in your home and in your spaces of productivity, the Holy Spirit will shape your desires and your hopes so that you're being prepared for whatever it is that God has for you. So that's what my hope is today, that we just see this passage with the eyes that God wants us to see them with. And if you're a Christian today, you've already been set apart to be able to hear this. And that is my prayer for you. So let's go and pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us today as we go through this passage, looking at what it looks like to be in a Christian home and also to be in a Christian workspace. Father, we know, Lord, that as we look around, that that's not how many of our homes and workspaces are. We acknowledge that. We're kind of sad about that sometimes. And maybe that's what we want even. We don't want our homes to reflect some of what Scripture has shown us or has told us. But I pray, Lord, that we would look into your word today with a heart that comes from who we are in Christ. Father, that because you're a great love for us, that you sent your son to die for us. So Lord, you call us to be sacrificial, serving, loving people in all these spaces. Help us then to be able to see your intent and your design for the home and for the workspace. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this morning just to draw us near to you. Help us, God, to know your heart. Help us, God, to be who we are in Christ, set apart, chosen, and special. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, there's two major points, and they connect to the particular space. Okay, so the first point is relating to putting Christ in the center of your home, and that's going to be looking at the husband and wife relationship and then the parent and child relationship. And then the second main point is going to be looking at Christ being in the center of your workspace which could be an official workspace in the future, or it could be where you're called to be productive now. Okay, so those are the two main points, and then after that, I'll come back to be able to tie some of these things together. So let's go to the next slide, please. Christ in the center of your home. We're looking at verses 18 to 21, starting from verse 18. Please go to the next slide. So this is what the Apostle Paul says. You see the particular roles then in bold, okay? So I'll just read through again so that we're connecting to the immediate passage here. Starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. This is such a quick and fast bullet point list. There's four verses, four rules. There are four commands and four descriptions of those commands. Paul is just getting to this as quickly as he can because he just wants you guys to see the connection of how these roles have a particular call from God for people to live out. And then how these roles in lived out this way is supposed to be able to support and be able to demonstrate and will show something that connects with the heart of God. Okay, so it's really short and it's really brief. It's not going to be hard to understand, although I'll explain a little bit in terms of context how it could help us to better understand it as it relates to our life. But it's not confusing. This list is not meant to be something you look at, you're like, I don't get it. You're going to get it. The issue would be, how do I live this out? And maybe having the room in your mind to ask why. Why is this something that God wants me to do? And what is it that God is calling me to do? Okay, so all the men and women in this room, you're going to fit in here somewhere, either in the future or in the present. So this is where I want you guys to really put your thinking caps on by having your ears open and think, why does Paul, in the name of God, command husbands and wives, parents and children to do and live out these things for what reason? Get down to that base level of the why. And then I think when you wrestle with how it can look or the questions or the doubts that you have, there's a place for all of that. That's great. I welcome all of that because at the end of the day, obedience to Christ comes from you. It's not told to you. It's not forced upon you. But then once you focus on the why, then a lot of the what starts to make sense and the how falls into place. All right, so right here it begins with wives. Submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Personally, I think the priority, especially when we tie in Ephesians 5, where there's really long passage about husbands and wives. If you guys remember, what is the picture of the husband and wife in our life? It is a picture of Christ and the church. So when you have a husband and wife, like you know your parents or other husbands and wives that you see, it's supposed to be a shadow. It's supposed to be something that points people to, this is what it looks like when Jesus is the head and then the church is the body. So marriages are not just for marriages alone. It's really important to see what God had intended marriages to be. So even when you see the word wives submit, why? As fitting to the Lord, it reflects that God had designed, you know, for the wife to serve in a particular way and to be in a relationship in a particular way. This, though, if we just hear it right away, it doesn't sound good for all of the right reasons. It doesn't sound right. And the reason why your antenna might be going on and saying, well, you know what, I, I don't know if I believe this or I want to, if I should, is because we live in a sinful world in which people use commands like this to abuse women, to manipulate women, to call women to do things and to be things that are not pleasing to God, not fitting to the Lord. It has become broken of a command in a society that we live in that uses power for selfish gain, even in a husband and wife relationship. And some of you might have seen this, whether you've lived it in your own life or you've seen this in the lives of others. So then you're kind of your antenna goes up and go, wait, submit to your husbands. Wait, that doesn't, that's dangerous. That's not right. That's not good. 
But to start with, it's as fitting to the Lord. It's related to God's design for marriage and for men and women as image bearers of God. Do you remember when I said you guys are special in Christ? You are. You're chosen in Christ. But even if you're not a Christian today, did you know that the Bible says that you're special, period? Why are you special as you're sitting here? Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've been at this church for like a week or you've been here since you were born, why are you special regardless of your relationship with God? It's because God made you in his image. Genesis tells us this, that human beings were uniquely set apart from animals and other creation to be people that reflected who God is. So when you have emotions, when you have a sense of right or wrong because of a conscience, when you see something and you're able to think deeply about it rather than just memorize facts, when you're able to articulate and reason, that's all because God does that. Creation don't do that except for you. So God has put in you a reflection of who he is as the mighty creator of all things, as the one that knows right from wrong, but also created right and set it apart from wrong. What is true moral good versus what is true moral evil? God knows because he is the definition of all of those things. And you are made in his image. Whenever you feel a sense of injustice about something, whenever you feel like there's something wrong and the world should be better, that's because you have God's image in your heart. Whenever you protect the weak, whenever you care for those that are less fortunate than you, whenever it is that you serve and volunteer in your schools, more than just for the hours that you get signed from your teacher, if there's ever a sense in which it pulls on your heartstrings, that is the image of God in your heart. See, animals just kill and eat each other. People are set apart to be image bearers of God. You're special because God set you apart. And so when you then see God's commands in a sinful world and you sense there's something weird about this, yes, but think about it not so much as in does this reflect that God is not good Think about it from the perspective of how has sin broken what is good? So maybe I could explain a little bit more of this idea of submission. I'll tell you what submission isn't. And this is not just like a, a woman thing or a man thing, a wife thing or a husband thing. We're all called to submit to one another in Ephesians 5 as Christians. We're called to submit to our authority as Christians, governments, leaders, police officers. We're called to submit to them. Submitting doesn't mean that you're less than the person you're submitting to. Submitting doesn't mean that you're subservient to the person that you're choosing to submit to. Submitting doesn't mean that you have no opinion, no skill, no intelligence, and nothing good about you so that you could be a doormat for people to step on. Submission is not a consequence. Submission is something you choose to do in the order of what God has designed. It doesn't mean in the husband and wife relationship that the husband is better and the wife is not as good, and so the wife submits to the husband. That's not the reason. Because oftentimes we know that women not only are smarter, more gifted, 
more compassionate, more emotionally balanced and engaged, able to carry a better conversation and more observant than many guys, especially at your age, as the guys are still maturing, probably a little bit behind you. I'm just calling it like it is. You've learned all this already. It's not saying women are less. It's not saying women are inferior. It's not related to who they are. It's related to God's design for a family. See, what it means to be fitting to the Lord is that it is appropriate and it is orderly and it is good. Not that it is a place that allows for sin and abuse to take place. Submitting is not ever so that you can be a doormat to someone else's abuse or sin as a wife. What's an example of submission in the Bible? Well, what do we believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? We believe that the Bible teaches that they're separate persons, but they are one God, and that they are all equal, correct? As persons. That's what Christians teach. So that means that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal, that they are God, and that they are supreme and transcendent and over us as creation. But what do you see each person of the Trinity do? Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Why? Because that's why he was sent into the world. Jesus is not inferior to the Father. Jesus is not less holy than the Father. Jesus is not less powerful than the Father, but he submitted. What do you see the role of the Holy Spirit? The role of the Holy Spirit is one that, like John the Baptist, decreases so that he may increase Christ. The role of the Holy Spirit is to fill believers and to conform and make followers of Jesus become more like Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus and not make it about the Holy Spirit. So what does it show? That the Holy Spirit submits, but it's not the Holy Spirit is less. But see, when we see this at work, then we're able to see, okay, so each person is equal. Each person is a part of God. God is one, perfectly united, perfectly loving in a triune community since the beginning of time and until forevermore. And it's beautiful. As this then, a husband and wife is able to give that picture when there's a sense in which there is a sacrificial leader who will do everything to lay his life down. And then there is the partner, the equal partner, who then will go along with. Because guess what marriage is, according to the Bible? Two persons becoming one. So there's a single leadership for one person, but it's not disregarding the wife. This is where the husband's command is very important. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If you look at the Ephesians passage, and we don't need to spend time going there, but the Ephesians passage in saying that Jesus is like the husband or the husband is like Jesus, what did Paul say the husband would do if he was Jesus. He would lay down his life. He would die for the sake of his wife. That's what Jesus did for the church. That's what Jesus did for us. And not only was Jesus intentional about it, but Jesus submitted to God in doing it, and Jesus did not complain as he was doing it. 
That is what it looks like for a husband to love the wife. If I was to put this on an order of importance, I would actually make the first command to the husbands first. I would say, husbands, love your wives. Give your life. Be willing to die for your wife. And then if the command to the wives came after, you know what? Follow his lead. Support him. Sharpen him. Challenge him. But go together. In my 20-some years of being married and also doing premarital counseling, I have never found a Christian wife that had a husband like that that said, you know what, I don't appreciate that. I'm not going to follow his lead. The issue is when the husband is not like Christ, then the wife is like, this is kind of a, a bad deal for me. But even then, it's unto the Lord, but not to ever sin or abuse for the wife. See, what does it look like when the husband is willing to lay his life down for his wife, able to treat his wife like he does himself? It would be like if he says or does or thinks or plans anything to the detriment of his wife, it's like self-harm. It'd be like he was cutting himself if he was not loving his wife the way that Christ loved the church. Needless to say, then, it means to say the least, don't be harsh with them. You don't command them around. You don't treat them like they only belong in the kitchen and just to serve you. That's not Christian. It might be a cultural husband and wife. That's not Christian. The Christian husband, in laying down his life, would also lay down his priorities. It would be maybe he offers to do the things that are hard, that he offers to take care of the chores and the responsibilities, to spend time with the kids and to do the things that are difficult that he's willing to do what it takes to provide for the family, even though we know oftentimes both the husband and the wife works nowadays. But he's going to do his part, regardless of how much money he makes. It's laying down his life for the betterment of the person that you love, and that should be then his wife. There's a sense of relationship here. And that might be where even a lot of times in our own upbringings, we don't see that as much with our parents. I think the Asian upbringing is where you see people being responsible, but you don't always see people be kind and loving towards one another as husband and wife. I know I didn't grow up seeing a lot of that in my household. And whatever it is, I'm that way, it grosses my kids out, right? But that's cultural for us. But you got to realize that the bonds of relationship is what anchors this relationship. It's not just that they have responsibilities. It's that the husband loves her like himself, and the wife supports and walks with the husband because they're one. So now just take a moment to think about all of your preconceptions or your dreams or vision for what marriage can accomplish You know, 10 years, 20 years from now for you. You can't usually help but try to place something in the future for yourself. That's pretty normal. So if you ever thought about marriage, whatever it is that you've thought, please consider from above what a truly beautiful marriage centered on Christ can look like. And if you're a man, strive to be that man that will be responsible to die for his wife, not less. That. And if you're a wife, grow close to God so that you could help your husband grow close to God. And be the best that you can be 
then however it is that God has gifted you, whether in your studies, whether in work, whether in your gifts and abilities, be the best that you could be. But strive for that oneness with your future husband. You can start thinking about ways in which you could grow in that now. And I hope that you can see that all those things are actually joyful things to think about. Because if this was the type of husband that you're married to, if this was the wife that God has given to you, and this is then how you choose to live, it's beautiful. And in Christ, it is possible, even if it's not perfect. All right, moving on then to, to the next pair here, children and fathers. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You know, the Bible draws a very strong connection between the obedience of children and their responsibility as children. Now, this is also in the same way, not to say that you guys are less than your parents, but it is where on the flip side, if the parents are called to provide and to lead and to guide the children, especially as you're growing up, but then learning how it is to give you more room and give you more space and to let you come into your own. I mean, they have their part. It's a great responsibility. So then your part would be to obey your parents. That being said, like the wife being submissive to the husband, it's as to the Lord. So if your parents call you and engage you or challenge you or encourage you to do things that are sinful, this is where you can and should say no. Although you want to do that in a way that is talking to them and sharing with them rather than just being angry with them. I know it's not easy. And I know that a lot of times parents don't make it easy on you to disagree. But this is where then the idea is that you're doing as unto the Lord and where then God would give you strength and patience from within. For parents then, I actually find this to be much more insightful. It says parents in certain translations, and here it says fathers, but also I see that that's being very insightful. Oftentimes, the moms tend to be more tender and compassionate. It's usually the dads that are a little harsh or insensitive or commanding to the kids in a way that's not helpful. And so when it's a command at the level that Paul is elevating it to, it means this is what God wants. God wants dads in particular to not give their kids a hard time, to not say things and do things that frustrate them unnecessarily, to not give them expectations that they can't meet, to not ignore the things that they say, to not, not pay attention to their lives and what they share, even if you don't fully understand it, to not intentionally say things to discourage rather than to help build them up. And I would say Christian parents have a lot to learn about this too. And I don't think that as a whole Christian parents do it perfectly or even well. I love also here in the same way that the wife and the husband, there's an emphasis on relationship. So the husband is called not to be harsh because it's a call to be loving and caring to the wife even as he leads. Paul doesn't want the kids in a household to feel discouraged. Another way that this has been translated is exasperated. Like, you're just frustrated. You're like, my parents don't get me, and I don't think they care to. 
that's very frustrating. Or you have the same fights over and over and over again, and it's like they don't get it. That's frustrating. Or they keep telling me to do the same things, and I'm trying, but they don't see that I'm trying, and they're still getting on me. I need some space. That's frustrating. So parents need to grow, too. So what matters to God in the house is that there's joy. That it matters to God that you're actually happy in a Christian household as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, that you're happy, not just because everything's going well, but you're happy because God is good. And in everything that you're doing, in all your relationships and conversations, you could experience that over time. Not that there's not moments of sadness, tragedy, or hardship, but that overall, there is this joy because Jesus is the center of your household. This morning, I had a conversation with someone in our congregation, and it was about something ministry-related. That was the reason. But then two minutes into the conversation, she started crying because someone in her family passed away this week, just suddenly, unplanned. And it was just so hard. And I could tell that when she was coming in, she was trying to put on like the, you know, everything's fine face, and I didn't know better. I didn't know what she was going through that week. But then within two minutes, we were just were catching up. I was sharing a little bit about life, and she was sharing. And then next thing you know, tears come down. I'm like, oh, man, good thing I have my last two tissues in my, in my desk. It's family. And they were going through some hard times. And so when he passed away, it was really hard on her. It just happened. Can we go through suffering and hardship but still with joy? That's what God wants in the marriages in your home, and in the parent-child relationship in your home. God actually wants you as a child and as a student in your home to be happy and to have a great relationship with your parents. The call is on both the parents and the children to work on it as unto the Lord. So on your part, you have things to think about. But with parents, they have even greater things to think about. Well, let's look at the next passage. Next slide, please. So what does it look like when Christ is in the center of your work? When I read the passage, you're going to see that it seems to talk about a very particular setup in terms of relationship. But I want to bring it down then to where you guys are at sitting here in youth service. So next slide, please, starting from verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the bulk of this passage is actually towards people who are called bondservants. A way of maybe translating that would be Slaves. A helpful way of understanding it is not like slavery, like maybe what America has gone through in the past. And still, there's sex slavery all around the world, things that are just really evil and wrong still happening. Not, it's not that kind of slavery. When the Bible speaks of bondservants or slave, it points to a very common arrangement in which people choose to submit to the service of a master, like their boss, and then they would work there and be an employee there 
and belong to the master and serve. Sometimes they're able to be free. You know, sometimes you know, there's wages involved. But it's not the same as what is considered like chattel slavery, which America had. Very different. Now, the Bible never tried to get rid of slavery because that was just a very common institution. Like we have bosses and employees today. Like you have supervisors, you know, if you're interning somewhere or if you're volunteering somewhere, you have a boss. That was a very common institution at that time. But see, the Bible always pointed to the people that were servants and the people who were the masters to live and do things in a way that put Christ in the center. So if you're a Christian and you are a master with servants, this is how you should live. If you're a servant and you're working for somebody, this is how you should live when Christ is in the center. So then how does it come down to you guys? Well, I think to the extent in which you guys have bosses in your life that you answer to, this passage has relevance. So you can start kind of thinking, okay, well, who do I answer to in my school life? Who do I answer to when I volunteer? Who do I answer to when I'm getting an internship? Who do I answer to even, you know, more generally in our school that I have responsibilities and someone oversees me? That's where it hits home. And as I look around, I'd imagine that everyone maybe could think of someone or an instance in which this situation can be relevant. So what does Paul tell then the servants to do? In other words, you are responsible to someone above you in some way, whether it's doing your homework, whether it's doing a project, whether it's volunteering you know, in some capacity. What are you supposed to do? Well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Do your best. Do it for God. And don't worry about what other people think. Remember I said how these commands are simple? The issue is usually what comes up in our hearts with the question of, what's in it for me? I'm going to straight up tell you guys that that's a legitimate question. Because I think a lot of times, you know, let's say you're working on a homework assignment, and you're like, man, my teacher doesn't even care. They don't even check it. Why should I do this? Or let's say you're volunteering somewhere, and it's supposed to be like four hours. You're there somewhere. You can get it done in like an hour. What's the point of me trying hard? Right? Let's say you're applying to college and you know that, okay, there's some like secret formula. If I just write my essays these four different ways and have these classes, and the, as long as I squeeze in, who cares? Right? Like these are very common ways of thinking, right? I'm not even saying that you're weird for thinking those things. I'm saying that the weird for thinking above from the Christ centered perspective would be hey, more than what people see, that's great. You could fool anybody. And that's what Paul is trying to say. It's not to people, please, because you're going to be smarter than some of your bosses and your teachers and, you know, your supervisors from now all the way into the future. You're probably able to get away with a ton of stuff. But is that the purpose of anything we're working on? Just so that we could get away with doing the minimum when God has given us so much more in capacity to do? Just to do our best? If you guys know me, you know that I'm a big Lakers fan. So yesterday was a good day. But if you were to catch a little bit of interviews with LeBron, the guy's a multimillionaire. I mean, billionaire by net worth. Okay, so all the winners get 500000 a person. He does not need it. He could accidentally lose 500000 and be like, whatever. But if you catch the interview with him, what did he say? 
he said, yes, it's about the money, you know, straight up. It's about the money. Yeah, there, the benefits or, you know, of completing your task, if you get rewards, yes. There is not no place for you getting rewarded for something earthly. But he's like, man, you know, I, I've been in this for a long time. You know, I just want to, you know, pick up my guys, give them a boost. I want us to play hard and be able to see what it's like, you know, to win something. All these are like the intangibles. That's what drove him to work hard. It's because there was a greater purpose to working hard. He doesn't need the money. And really, none of those guys need the money. When you're in the NBA, you're making millions. You don't need the money. But I think what drove the guys was beyond the money. The money is nice. But what drove them was, hey, we want to achieve something. We want to accomplish something. We want the, to be the first in something. We want to, you know be undefeated in something, even if it's early in a season, we're doing this for us, we're doing this for our town, we're doing this for basketball, we're doing this for glory. And you can see that. So when Paul is calling bond servants and slaves and servants to say, yeah, work hard, but don't do it just so that people can be satisfied with you and admit you or give you an A or give you a raise, don't settle for that. That's like nothing. Who cares? Do it because God is pleased by how you are a steward of the gifts and talents he has given you as his image bearers who is beloved to be able to be a blessing to the world. Make a difference that's eternal. And you're thinking, oh man, how does homework do that? I'm telling you, I don't know. But I am telling you that it pleases God for you to do things for him. So don't do it just for other people. Give your best because it honors God. And you just are then putting faith in the fact that God says, if I do my best in whatever area that I'm in, whoever it is I'm, ser I'm serving, whatever team I'm on, that God is pleased by that. I want to please him. I don't want to settle just for making these friends of mine happy when they're going to judge me anyway when I'm, I'm not looking. I want to please God more than I want to please people. I want to give my best because God deserves that because he gave me his best when he sent his son into the world. See, a person like that, not only will you be seen as a little weird, and people might make fun of you for that, and you don't have to come across like you're better than people. You should never do that. When you work hard, the work shows itself. But just know that the motivation is not even to say, oh, because Pastor Terrence told you so, it's because you know that when you think about things from God's point of view and who God has made you to be, you know this honors him. In your heart, you know when you try your best and you do your best, even if you fail, it honors him. You know that because God sees into your heart. And Paul wanted to be, remind any servant, any employee, any student to give their best. You know, I see here in verse 25 something that is a comfort for us. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So what that means is that a lot of times you might try your best in this world, in this life, and not be rewarded, while somebody that did nothing gets all the credit. Know this, God sees everything. So that may have happened in this project that you were on, that may have happened, and maybe someone that didn't deserve to get into some, some school did and you didn't. Maybe someone got a raise and you didn't. Maybe someone got promoted and you didn't. And you gave your best. And that stinks. But God sees everything. And you're trusting him 
when you do your best. There is no partiality. God gets into your heart. He sees the reasons why you do something, and he will reward you, if not in this life, in the next. And everyone that sees life from the perspective of seeking things from above and seeking things that are eternal, what you'll have forever is always greater than what you could grab onto now and lose. If you ever come into a role in which you are leading other people and you are supervising other people or you're teaching other people, chapter four, verse one, treat them well, treat them as you wanna be treated. Don't just use them or abuse them. And as I look around, I think many of you guys, as you do your best, God will put you guys in positions in life where you'll lead. So when you lead, show God's love. This is not just something that is away from you. I know you guys want to be things and people in life. You want to reach a status or a position in life. You have your dreams. So with these dreams come responsibility if you're a Christian. Treat people right. Do it for God, even if you don't get anything out of it. Remember that now, so that in five, 10 years from now, when it matters every day, this will come back to you. Remember this, treat people right if you're over them. That's really important. Next slide, here's the big idea for today. Serving God and others in our home and work brings lasting purpose and joy in this broken world. Once again, the big idea, serving God and others in our home and work brings lasting purpose and joy in this broken world. And I want to close just by, I think, sharing pretty honestly and straightforwardly with you guys as a husband, as a parent, and as a pastor. So as a husband, I've definitely fallen short in ways. And there's ways in which I still need to grow. And so I say that because many of the dads in your households are in the same place as me. They're not all there. Some needs to humble themselves and repent, especially if they're Christians. But we all struggle. I think back with things that I said that I shouldn't have said. I think back to ways in which I've acted which were selfish. And I regret those things. This is an everyday struggle for every husband, especially if you're a Christian, because you know you answer to God. So if at this time you're thinking about, let's say, you know, your, your dad or your parent in your house, and maybe you're coming from a place in which their marriage is rocky and difficult, Know that the struggle is real and pray for them, especially if they're Christians. Think about ways in which you can encourage them. That could be the best way that you can obey your parents is to build them up and to support them and to pray for them. As a parent, I've had many fails. Many, many times in which I didn't listen long enough. I said things prematurely that I didn't take the time to pay attention to what people were going through and just made a quick judgment or decision. I've done that, and to the extent in which I can apologize for that, I have. But I know that it's far from being where I've completely come across, you know, to all my kids, 
as being one that is like Christ. There's a long way to go. You know, a lot of times you say things and it just really bugs people and it annoys them and it cuts them short and you didn't even mean to. A lot of times you push a reward as a parent. That's not the reward that Christ offers. A lot of parents, because they love you, they want you to work hard to be safe and comfortable. But a lot of times, that's not the same as being faithful to Christ. And a lot of times, those pressures are what causes the conflicts. Because innately, you see that there's something weird about, wait, I thought we're Christians. Why are you making me live for this? You're not wrong when you feel those things. And so we need your prayer. To the extent in which you're able and you desire to be forgiven for the mistakes that you made, I'm not expecting you to rise to the level of your parents because I hold them more responsible in the way that I hold husbands more responsible in a marriage to be the servant sacrificial leader. But in a way by which you feel like you can be better understood, show that to your parents in bits and pieces. I know they'll appreciate it, even if they don't know how to say it. And the last thing that I'll say is maybe in a lot of our capacity and relationship as one of the pastors here in this church, you know, there's ways in which we serve together and maybe there's ways in which you guys as students, you know, serve under me or Pastor Kevin. We don't always say and do the things that we want you to do or communicate with you or to lead you perfectly. So maybe some of you guys have been hurt or frustrated by ways in which you've been led by your pastors. Just know that we are wanting to shepherd you well and to show you the love that is in Christ that only God can give. So please tell us. If at any point things that we say or do, you're just like, I don't get it. Why is Pastor Sarah saying this? It bothers me or annoys me or, you know, he hurt me in this way. There's an open door. Talk to us. Like, if we're all a work in progress, it means that on both sides, husband, wife, parent, child, pastor, parishioner, that we're growing towards Christ together. And when it's happening, when God's love is in the center of our home, of our work, and in our church, people will come to him. Your faith will be strengthened and the gospel will be preached, and disciples will be made. That's what we want. So to the extent in which God calls you to take a step towards the people in your home, the people in your schools, and the people in your church to show Christian love and to live for Christ, please do that. And we're in this together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for today, and we do thank you, Lord, for this passage that speaks about the most foundational relationships in all of our lives. Lord, we come before you knowing that maybe it is these particular relationships that have in many ways hurt and broken us in the past, or maybe things that we have seen have leaked and reeked of sin and selfishness, whether it's by our own doing or in the lives of others. And Lord, we want to come before you and just confess and ask you for forgiveness and help in the ways in which you've come short. But we thank you, Lord, that in Christ, Lord, that you show us a higher love, that in Christ you give us a higher calling, 
and also because we are chosen ones in Christ, that we are commanded to seek the things that are above. So help us, God, to see things with your eyes, and help us, Father, to turn to you and to surrender to you the pain and the shortcomings and the flaws, and maybe even the ways that we've been hurt by others to you so that we're able to forgive and we're able to reconcile and that we're able to repent in a way that honors you. So I thank you, Lord, for today, and I pray, Lord, that even if this, some of the specific roles in this passage don't come to fruition until five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now, if ever, Lord, I pray that you would already be shaping our hearts and our minds to how we should see the world and how we should see it through your eyes. Be in our homes, be in our schools, be in our church, and be in our communities. May your love reign supreme as Christ is supreme. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.